Hi, you're listening to 48 Minutes, and this is Tim Kittrow from NBA Jam. Ooh, boom, shakalaka. All right, guys, thank you for tuning in to this special Friday lunchtime, or in Jeff's case in California, brunch time maybe breakfast time more uh, podcast recording that we're doing live here on the 40 minutes YouTube channel. I'm so excited to be joined by Jeff Perlman, New York times, bestselling author. We're going to be discussing this one today, the three ring circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the crazy years of the Lakers dynasty with Mr. Jeff Perlman himself. Jeff, how you doing today, man? I think we need to start by saying two things. Number one, you just told me that this was going to be on video. So now you can see my wide open closet and my, my bad. No, no, all good. <laughs> Number two, you did do something um, very unjournalistic, unjournalistic, which is you said to me, you were at Sports Illustrator when I was born. Making oh, yeah. And then that wasn't even accurate. That was not accurate. I was I was at Sports Illustrator when you were six. So there's a big difference. Yeah, I know. I'm off to a great start with this yeah. one. Yeah. So. Thankfully, that's okay. not going to be on the recording, but... Um, oh, come on. That's good stuff. You got to keep that on. There's nothing wrong with self It'll be on the YouTube video, at least. Okay. So, um, so Jeff, um, I'm really excited about this. I was up every night reading this book for weeks. Uh, my fiance would try to sleep, and I had the light on in our bedroom, or so she was definitely bothered by it. But um, I just... I listened to, like... I kid you not, I probably listened to about 12 interviews you did for this book, because I was like... I want to try to see if I can find some at least unique questions that for the time for writing this book. Cause I know you did. I mean, you did Dan Patrick, Rich Eisen, Bill Simmons, Zach Lowe, like you did everybody. So like, yeah. Did. And uh, you know, on top of the 310 people you interviewed, I'm sure like, are you at the point yet where you're like, okay, I'm ready to talk about the Bo Jackson book. Is that where you're at now? Well, you know, this book came out now. It, it's been like a little gap. Like I haven't been doing many interviews about this book now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel I'm probably a little refreshed, actually. Sure. So I'm intrigued because I probably ended up doing 140 interviews about this book because I was really, I, I worked yeah. hard to promote this thing, especially during a pandemic. So I am intrigued to see if you can find up find questions that I've not been asked. Yeah, it was it was hard, man. It was really difficult. A lot of pressure. So, you put the pressure on yourself here. I know. I know. I'm off to a great start here, like I said. So um, I try to put back kind of the angle for me. So around 2000 when the Lakers won their first title, I thought about where I was. I was just about to turn 11 years old. You know, Jordan had just retired in 98. So I was like looking for that new cool team to be a fan of. Cause I was a kid, like, you know, I was a kid of the nineties. I love the Dallas Cowboys. I grew older and realized it's not a good idea, you know? So I was kind of in that time frame. So this team, like attaching myself to Kobe and Shaq was so easy for me. Um, Shaq and Penny, I was such a big fan of because the Orlando jerseys were so cool with the pinstripes and Shaq going there and just like being, you know, the most dominant dude ever. And so for me, it was like really cool to go back and read this again, because there's a lot of stuff that is 10 years old, you know, going on to, you know, 04 when it's all over when I'm 14, 15 years old. And I'm like, didn't understand as a kid. And now that I'm an adult and I'm in my thirties and stuff, I totally understand. So this was a lot of fun for me. And I think a lot of the thing that really maybe you haven't touched on as much as I think is uh, in, in other interviews, is like how much Phil looked to old reliable sources 
from his Bulls days for these teams. So you look at 2000 specifically, obviously he brings in John Sally to kind of be the mentor. You talk about in the book, how he got Kobe Bryant out and that was a total win for him. And he brings in Ron Harper, which is really funny because Melvin Levitt from the university of Cincinnati is a buddy of mine. He was in Lakers training camp in 2000. He always says that if they don't sign Ron Harper, he probably makes the team. So was there something you noticed in your time talking with Phil, where you're like, you kind of could see like, he had this old bag of tricks he was going for. Cause obviously the rumors forever were I'm he's trading for Scottie Pippen. It never went through. Eddie Jones was offered for everybody under the sun. So what do you like, does that something you kind of clicked in your time talking with Phil and kind of like get, getting your stuff together for this book? Actually, not really. I, um, I would say it wasn't about bringing in old bulls. It was about having a, um, a cast of supporting players around Shaq and Kobe. Um, who could rise above the sort of uh, disharmony and who could be steadying influences in the, in the locker room. Um, and generally as a coach, your first instinct is to go with what, you know, so, mm -hmm. you know, Scotty Pippen, I think he really wanted Scotty Pippen because Scotty Pippen made sense. Like Scotty Pippen actually made sense for that team more than Eddie Jones. Yeah, he did. As far as being a kind of point forward orchestrator, blah, blah, blah. Like that actually made sense. I don't think, Phil Jackson was under the illusion that Scottie Pippen was some kind of clubhouse leader or calming influence. He certainly wasn't, but right. I think, you know, in a way, Ron Harper and uh, John Sally were no different than Brian Shaw and Rick Fox. You know, the idea or Derek Harper uh, later on Horace Grant, obviously a former bull. The idea is how can we get guys in here who are, are not going to be influenced by LA who are going to be influenced by the bullshit as far as the, you know, the back and forth between these two stars and could coach themselves and help coach the team. So I don't think it was necessarily because they were former Bulls, but I do think you go with what you know of them. Yeah, and there's actually kind of leaning that. There's a part in the book, and I was wondering if I could kind of get a little more clarification if you kind of know. So there's a part in the book, I think it's pretty early, you talk about where Shaq longed for you know, the relationship with Penny Hardaway. Was that something where you're saying, like, was he trying to get the Lakers to trade for Penny Hardaway? No. Uh, okay. It's really, I mean, because that was impractical. Because you know, in making the decision to, I mean, they, they got basically outbid for Shaq. There was no way the magic were going to let Penny Hardaway right. prime leave. It was an awful ownership. Yeah. I mean, but there was no way they were going to get rid of Penny. No, it was just, um, he really came to appreciate what Penny was, you know, when he was with Orlando, I mean, Shaq is great, but Shaq definitely had jealousy issues and yes. trouble sharing the spotlight. And when he heard that the magic were conflicted about giving him all this money because they knew they'd also have to pay Penny Hardaway that definitely pissed him off. And when he came to LA and all of a sudden he's playing with this kind of selfish, but gifted, you know, child. Um, I think he definitely developed an appreciation for Penny, who was a very unselfish basketball player. Yeah. Literally my favorite player of all time, like got all there the jerseys. So I remember like as a kid in 2000, when they played the Suns in the first round of the playoffs and being like, I don't know how I feel about this. Cause I was, I was like, this is so conflicting for me. And, uh, you know, obviously they run through that one on the way to Portland and going to beat Indiana. Uh, I was in New York for Penny as a Nick. And oh, boy. Then it started getting kind of sad because he was kind of doughy Penny. And also, yeah. it's always sad when you're watching a guy and you want him to be who he was. But he can't be who he was because he's been hurt and injured. But you just kind of want him to be Penny of the Magic Days or even Penny of the Sundays. And he was just not. Yeah, I got to interview him. So I cover Cincinnati Bearcats basketball. 
And now they're in that conference with Memphis. I got to be in this presser last year. And that was like my like, cool, I don't have to do this anymore. I can retire moment. Cause it was like kind of my guy, uh, but it was neat. Like the answers you gave me were very thoughtful and thorough and something you appreciated. So yeah, I can't imagine like working there and seeing like Nick's penny. Like I'm sure that was like pretty, pretty tough. Like you said, especially seeing, at least it wasn't Miami penny for eight games. I just want to say one of my, uh, one of my greatest moments in journalism involves Cincinnati Bearcat basketball. I know this isn't what this podcast is about, but when I was um, when I was a sophomore at the University of Delaware, mm-hmm. Delaware made its first NCAA tournament ever, and they were playing Cincinnati. They were paired with Cincinnati, and Delaware was a 13 seed. Cincinnati yeah. was a four, and nobody knew that much about Cincinnati. It was a young coach, Bob Huggins. They had a guy named Nick Van Axel. Nobody knew who these guys were, and we all thought Delaware could win this game. You know, Delaware was really good. Delaware was 27 and three entering the tournament. We all thought Delaware. I'm a young college sophomore. They fly us out, Dayton, Ohio. I'm sitting courtside. Delaware takes a 6-2 lead. And it's like, oh, my God, Delaware, Delaware. And all of a sudden, Cincinnati turns on the press. And they just press Delaware. And uh, Cincinnati won by 39. Yeah. And it was just an avalanche of Bearcat press the whole game. It was one of the most impressive basketball displays I've ever seen in my life. It was just thrilling to watch, even though Delaware got crushed. They really missed that team a lot around here. They really missed that, like, Bob Huggins press. And, like, you really see like, they were struggling a lot this year. So it's funny you say that because Nick was, like – so Nick's one of my all-time favorite players, too. Like, I was always a big Van Axel fan being where I grew up and stuff like that. And you go really deep into his book. Like, his story is unbelievable in some extent yeah. as far as, like, his dad being in and out and be like, hey, I'm in town. Why don't we meet up? And, like, he's like, why don't you come watch me play in this stuff? And also, like, the dynamic between him and him and Della Harris, or lack thereof, just being a really unique circumstance and scenario. In the case of, like, Della Harris was well aware Nick didn't like him, it seemed like, at times, but he really wanted him to like him. So when you kind of talk to those guys about that time frame when they're together, what was kind of really jumped out to you the most about Nick really kind of reflecting on his time with the Lakers? Well, what I think is really interesting, and I think you learn as you do this job longer and longer. Like, I remember... I'm sure when Nick Van Exel was playing for the Lakers, I thought, oh, look at this asshole. He's such a, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And you kind of realize, like, you look how a guy was brought up and how he was raised, and you actually come to admire Nick Van Exel. And you think, holy cow, this guy was freaking resilient. And this guy was strong. And this guy fought through. And he made, you know, these athletes are basically used as poker chips for guys like Bob Huggins, who see him as ways to get shoe deals for themselves and become high profile, maybe get an NBA job. And Nick Van Exel is just a kid from Wakosa, Wisconsin who's trying to make it with a single mom, with a dad who abandoned him. And he just always had a chip on his shoulder because how couldn't he, you know? And he comes, the thing about Dale Harris, and I experienced this too, Dale Harris was a great coach. He's a great basketball mind, but he just doesn't shut up. He talks and talks and talks and talks. And And you're Nick Van Exel and you're all this kinetic energy and you just want to play and you want to get out there. And Dale Harris is taking 27 minutes to just explain to you something, some minute detail. It was very hard for him. And for a lot of those guys, Eddie Jones as well. So I think at the time, I probably thought of Nick Van Exel as a little bit villainous. And in hindsight, I totally get it. And also he, uh, he and Dale Harris now are really good friends. And Nick has been an NBA coach, assistant coach for a long time. And I just, I have much, much admiration for that guy. Yeah, because there's parts in the book where I'm like kind of laughing, especially because like you said, like knowing what we know now, um, there's circumstances where like, you know, obviously when Kobe's unfortunate passing, Nick is like, my little brother's gone. I'm devastated. He's been this on Twitter. And there's times in the book when you're talking about like Kobe's doing his total like long dribbling, running down the shot clock, not necessarily James Harden-esque that kids know today, but somewhat similar. And like, just, yeah, right. yeah. 
And then, uh, you know, Nick Van Exel, like being like rolling his eyes, like this is the bullshit that we deal with on a daily basis. So it really kind of was like one of those things that really made me laugh. Um, I think, you know, obviously the story of the book, kind of the biggest one of the bigger angles is definitely, you know, Kobe Bryant versus Shaq, who's who's in control. You mentioned earlier Shaq had major jealousy issues. We saw first in Orlando. It's detailed in this magic moment a lot on 30 for 30. And then, you know, in this case, obviously we go through all these similar circumstances where he's frustrated and he's trying to be the big brother. And obviously, you know, you knew about the dynamic where they weren't getting along, but you had these moments, you know, and like, I don't know if they were just celebratory moments, but I always think about like Kobe and Shaq on camera versus off camera. And one of the things that always jumps out to me is like, yeah, you read this book and it's like, they butted heads daily. They had fist fights and pickup games. And you also look at circumstances like when they win the title and the first time and they're sitting there in the locker room, that infamous clip where Kobe pats him on the chest is like most dominant guy ever. They're holding the title in the finals MVP. What did you really do? What did you learn more about that dynamic you didn't really have when you first started the book? I didn't know much about it at all. And I don't even think I ever watched the 30 for 30. I think on purpose I skipped it because um, I you try not to have. You want to develop through your own reporting as much as you can, you know, yeah. and figure it out, not have other journalists, you know. So um, I think what's one of the things that was really fascinating is the assumption would be that the kid arrives out of high school, he's 17, 18, and he's going to be the insecure one. He's going to be the mm-hmm. one who really needs guidance. And Shaq, you know, he just signed a $120 million deal and He's a superstar and he's been in movies. He's going to be the secure one. He's going to be the one. And it really is the opposite. Like Kobe came. I mean, Shaq was the one who like really wanted the big brother, little brother, Batman, Robin relationship. Yeah. And Kobe had no need for it and no desire for it and didn't want it. And Shaq was easily bruised and Shaq was easily, his feelings were easily hurt. You know, he was easily insulted and Kobe didn't give a shit. Kobe wasn't like that at all. Kobe, he was just hard. And that's not, people take that as a, that's not a criticism of Kobe Bryant how he was wired it probably made him a great great basketball player yeah. because he was a killer um and i really think the basis of the relationship's troubles is um sorry the basis <laughs> of the, that's my kid telling me to shut up that the basis of the relationship's trouble is Shaq wanted something that kobe was unwilling to give um and also you mentioned sort of you'd see these hostile moments and then you'd see these loving moments and i think that's actually more normal than people think like you it's the bonding of a shared experience. Like we battled, it was rough. We hated each other. We almost killed each other. We almost got in these fights, but somehow we survived to win an NBA championship and do something really awesome for the city and for the, for the, you know, in NBA history. So I don't think it's, I don't think one precludes the other from happening. I think you can hate each other in sports and also love each other in sports. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a few times when you did this uh, Kobe and Shaq compared to like Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent, who like, Giants fans like that's our three, four in our lineup, but those guys like pretty well known. You would see clips in the dugouts where those guys were at each other's throats and stuff. So it definitely was like, I know that definitely that dynamic. I was kind of, I also think, I think one thing that's interesting about that comparison though, is in baseball, you don't really need each other. Right. Ken can play second base and hit third and bonds can play, you know, left field and hit fourth and you do your job. And you don't even have to talk and you almost don't have to communicate. In fact, you really don't have to communicate. That's the amazing thing. Um, so in this world, number one, the locker rooms are much smaller. Like I used to cover baseball and I covered the Giants and Bonds was way over here and Kent was over here. They probably didn't say 10 words to each other in a baseball season. Uh, when you're Shaq and Kobe and you're in a small locker room and it's basketball with five guys on the court moving together, 
you have to communicate nonstop and your move directly impacts his move. So it's an interesting, it was an equal chilliness, I think, but um, I think there was much more communication between Shaq and Kobe. Yeah. One of my favorite stories in the book you talk about is 2002 before game six, when they play Sacramento, it's like two 30 in the morning and Shaq's like with his daughter and Kobe just out of the blue calls and is like, Hey, big fellow let's make history tomorrow and hangs up. And yeah. I think those are the kind of the things like people really long for. Cause I think there's a sense where people definitely appreciated the like bitterness, but I also kind of feel like there was times where I feel like people wanted them to like really like each other. Cause I remember as a kid reading sports illustrated for kids when Kobe's like, yeah, Shaq's like my big brother. And then he's like, he is not my big brother in like your book. So yeah, it was definitely kind of almost like, was it fair to say like a Jekyll and Hyde circumstance in that case? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think we do this thing in sports. I know I do. Mm-hmm. I was literally just think about this growing up. You, We do love duos. And we love this idea that they're best friends and they hang out together. Like um, when I was growing up, there was uh, the Detroit Tigers middle infield was Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell. And they were both great. And one was black and one was white. And I used to be like, man, I hope, I hope they're best buddies. Like, I hope they hang out yeah. together. They probably didn't. They probably go home and they come to work and they talk and like, there's something we, we crave kinship. We really do. It's a weird thing. We want in sports. We want kinship. We love uh, Gronk and Brady. You know, we want everyone to have a Gronk Brady relationship. And most of the time they don't. And most of Shaq and Kobe didn't hang out together off the court. They weren't in the same circles. They weren't even close to the same circles. They weren't the same personalities. They were totally, totally different people. I don't even think their games mesh that well, to be honest with you. Like I, they just happen to be transcendent talents. Like they were both so gifted that you're going to win more than lose if you had both those guys on the court at the same time. But it wasn't like there are a million highlights of Shaq and Kobe feeding off each other. Didn't really work that way. A lot of times Kobe would put up a shot. He would miss Shaq would get the rebound, slam it home. A lot of times Shaq would be posting up or he'd set a pick. Kobe would, but it wasn't like they were, it wasn't Stockton Malone. Right. It wasn't even close to Stockton Malone. And that's okay. Um kind of touch on this because we kind of touched uh, talked about for a second earlier in your time working on this book and then also your time kind of related to when you wrote a, worked on your book on Barry Bonds how would you compare learning things you learned about Bonds to how you learned about Kobe because they're two like at the time probably on top of their game you know arguably best players in the league at their times but also very polarizing athletes was there times when like when you were learning these stories that kind of reminded you of the time when you were doing your research for Bonds the thing is um Kobe wasn't, Kobe wasn't hated. Like yeah. Bonds was actually hated. Teammates hated, hated Barry Bonds. Hated. He wasn't a nice person. He was actually a mean person. He went out of his way to make your life harder. Um, Kobe wasn't that. Like Kobe was young and immature and a pain in the ass. Like there's a difference between being an asshole and being a pain in the ass. Right. Kobe was a pain in the ass. Barry Bonds was an asshole, a deliberate asshole. He went out of his way to be an asshole. So I think... Um, they're not really comparable. Like I, I okay. get it. I get, no, it's a good question. Actually. It's an, I haven't been asked that. There you go. That's a good yes. one. Yeah. You nailed it. I just, the thing about bonds, the challenge with bonds was getting people who liked him. I'm not kidding. That was really a challenge. I was like, I need to find people who like this guy. And it was really hard. And with Kobe, there were plenty of people who liked him, especially as he got older, he just was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Cause I think about, you know, I, you know, it's stuff I didn't understand. So like when we go through and God, the terrible, I can't imagine what that was like for you when you're writing like the sexual assault trials and the, those chapters going through that, how painful that was. Cause I think about like, I started doing sports media, you know, I guess amateurly, I'm not signed by anybody yet, but I was in my you're a free agent. Yeah. Free agent. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So in my early twenties, I covered Notre Dame football. 
And 2012, I covered the Manti Teo case. And like, that's the closest controversy polarizing athlete I've ever covered compared to you. So like all that was, was like, yeah, he got catfished and people wonder if he was in on it or not, where you're like, I had to literally go through court records and FBI interviews. And like, I can't imagine what that was like for you. But the thing is, um, when you're doing it, and I hope this doesn't come off wrong, but when you're doing it as a reporter, um, it's actually really kind of exciting and fascinating. Mm -hmm. And you're just, it becomes about the search. It's not about, it really does. You almost turn off your emotions a little bit while you're reporting. And it's just about finding everything. So as an example, I flew out to Eagle, Colorado. And I went to the Eagle Library. Eagle is a small town. I went to a public library. Library was empty. And I went to the second floor, I think. And there's a guy working there. And I told him what I was working on. He's like, oh, we have a Kobe folder. Do you want to see the folder? I'm like, Yeah. And there's this huge folder of all their Kobe clips from the case, right? And stuff like that is ridiculously exciting, you know, or getting the DA to meet with you. I sat down with the DA from the case and sat, you know, we met at a Starbucks in Denver and um, that stuff is just thrilling. So it's more like reading about it made me upset and angry and mm -hmm. disturbed like when you sit down and you think about it and you're yeah. like, God, this is very disturbing and disgusting and blah, blah, blah. But the actually reporting of it, you just kind of put on your hat and get your pen, get your pads, get your notebook, you know, all that stuff. And just, you just go after it and you're not thinking, oh, this is really hard. You're thinking this is an interesting challenge. Yeah. And I, I can imagine so. Cause like, I remember like, you know, I had this small entity I started with my friends and when the like thing came out, the like the Deadspin article claim came out, I got calls like, Hey, could you go do radio in Indianapolis? And I'm like me of all people, cause I'm this small, like little rinky dink kid that just started a blog with his friends. And I'm like, just didn't realize how big that was and how much it was happening. And then I just watched the backstory on a recent, I'm like, I totally forgot about half of this. So like going through that and then like going through with you, cause when Kobe got arrested, I remember I was like, oh, that sounds terrible, but I didn't know anything. I was 14. And, you know, when you're an adult and you understand now, like I said, I'm getting married in three months. So, like, thinking in that end of it is, like, how painful that was for me to, like, read this again. And it was just how hard that was for me, for sure. But on the happier things, I kind of want to talk about a few things you brought up throughout the book that just cracked me up that my buddies and I have laughed about forever. And, right. you like, you touch on a few things. Like, you mentioned, obviously, the year magic comes back. That's, like... The best first chapter I've ever read in a sports book because yeah. I was rolling at half the stuff. Like Cedric Sabalos giving himself the franchise nickname. Corey Blunt flat out being like, you can't give yourself that nickname. Yeah. Magic Johnson trying to get like, if you guys don't sign me back, I'm going to go play in Miami. Was it like, how much fun was that getting that information pre-Kobe and Shaq for you to start this book? Oh, I love that stuff. I am because I wrote a book called Showtime about the 80s Lakers and yeah. ended with Magic retiring. And I kind of viewed this, I thought of it to myself at least as almost like, all right, we're resuming and this is where we're resuming we're going to resume from magic coming back and i i find magic a fascinating character Same. i just do because he's he's kind of awesome and also kind of douchey at the same time you know like <laughs> yes. he's all about magic but he's also great and he can be really he can be a prima donna but he also brings people a lot of joy you know he's a really fascinating character and his comeback was all that it was like it reminded me of like a grandpa being like, you guys need to stop playing that hippity hop music and you know, blah, blah, blah. Like he finds himself surrounded by these, these kids who don't really, he's like, where's worthy. Where's Kareem. You know, it's like Nick Van Axel and Eddie Jones and Sabayos and he just doesn't get it. And it's such a poor fit and it doesn't even make any sense. 
Um, I loved everything about it. It was a joy. I love that stuff. I love J.R. Ryder. I love <laughs> that story's amazing. I just love that stuff. I love the little, I don't like Kobe and the rape case, just as an example, or even Kobe and the shack relationship. Those are things you have to write about. They're important. They were big in the era. Yeah. If you could tell me I could write about Cedric Ceballos every day. I'd be able to visit J.R. Ryder every day. I, I'd do that in a second. I love that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you're, the story about you going to his house is so funny. So if you don't mind, I know you've told it 40 times. If our, my listeners who don't know about it, do you mind kind of breaking it down again? I mean, so J.R. Ryder um, was a very good NBA player in the 90s, but very erratic and kind of emotionally maybe unstable. And the Lakers signed him, and um, he uh, it was for their second championship season. And they signed J.R. Ryder. And he doesn't play much and he's a pain. You know, he's a, he's just a pain. J.R. Ryder's a pain. And he really yeah. liked marijuana and blah, 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 the whole thing. I mean, and um, I really wanted to talk to him because he's so eccentric and um, my printer's printing. So I'm just going to pause. That's right. Okay. My son, you're going to see my son come behind me in a second. I bet. Um, <laughs> COVID, COVID 2021. Remote learning. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Home learning. You'll, you'll learn this one. You'll, when you're a dad, you're, you're not a dad, are you? Not yet. I got two dogs, but actually oh, one, yeah. I named one of my dogs Shaq because- Oh, um, funny. Yeah. What's the other one named? Uh, Nova. They're German Shepherd litter mates, actually. So. Oh, very nice. Um, so I really wanted to talk to J.R. Ryder because he was this erratic and interesting. And all I had was a, a uh, address. I did not have a phone number. And it was in Arizona and it was going to be in Arizona. So I figured I'm just going to go to his house and just show up and knock on his door because, hey. And um, I've done that before. It's always terrifying, but it's kind of exciting. So I get to his house. It's way too early. I don't know. It was like 930 in the morning. So it's too early. But I, I went and I knocked on his door and a kid answered. And I was like, hey, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. And he's like, hold on. Closes the door. A woman comes. I'm like, hey, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. Here comes my son behind me in five, <laughs> four, three. Hi, I'm his son. <laughs> How you doing? Pretty good. Um, and then um, so son's like, hold on. Woman comes to the door. Hey, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. My name's Jeff Fromer, reporter. Hold on. Closes the door. I hear two people arguing in the background. And then J.R. Ryder comes to the door. And I'm like, hey, I'm Jeff Fromer. I'm a reporter. Bro, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I'm working. Bro, no, man. No, no fucking way, man. No, 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 no. Fucking, you just showed my house, you fucking kidding. And I'm like, well, you know, the thing is, and he comes out and he's like five, you know, five inches from me. He's not far away. He's like, bro, that's so not cool, man. You don't just knock on a guy's door. That's not cool. And I had a copy of a book I wrote about an old football league called the USFL. I was like, well, you know, I write. He's like, bro, man, it's not. He goes, what's that book about? I'm like, well, I wrote a book about the USFL. And he goes, is that the, is that the Donald Trump league? And I'm like, yeah. What are you writing about? I'm doing a book about the Shaq Kobe era of the Lakers. All right, man, I'll talk to you. <laughs> and uh, he couldn't talk right then. He talked to me on the phone and gave me about two hours of awesome. So I thought I was going to get my ass kicked by J.R. Ryder. He definitely could have <laughs> kicked my ass, but he was great. He was wonderful. So, you know. Especially like he threatened to kill Tim Brown. <laughs> he said, I know where you live. I think I know where you live. I know where your family lives. And there was another reporter too. He threatened to kill in Minneapolis. I don't think he was ever going to. He's actually, well, I don't know. He's, he, was, he, had to, he had his moments of, he was cool though. He was good to talk yeah. to. I'm wide open. I'm a, I, my goal is to always interview everyone, you know, at least try to. So if you have to knock on someone's door and it's a, it's a drive, what the hell? Yeah. And that's, that just cracked up that. And then like the day with your day with Phil Jackson. And I know you've talked a lot about like drive around the lake and, you know, going to dinner with him. 
in like from that time because i know like if you like look at stuff and everyone talks about phil's not one who wants to talk about basketball he's more about like talking about life and things like that besides the obvious things you've told what was that experience like where you just to be around phil for a full day and just like hearing him just like because he's a super intelligent guy he's a goofy dude obviously if you read any book or documentary or anything he's done but just being around him for a full day and just like getting to know him more and more what was that whole process like for you all right, so I'm going to say something, but I hope it doesn't come off as condescending because I don't mean it that way. Okay. Sure. Like you were talking about the press conference where Penny Hardaway and you were like, I'm, I've lived my life. Now. You know, like I'm, I'm complete, right? Yeah. And I think when I was in my 30s, I was definitely in the same exact place where I would be, I was covering baseball. You'd be like, holy crap, I just interviewed so-and-so. And I will say, as you get older in this business, you become a little more jaded, right? Sure. And you do lose a little of that, like, holy cow, I'm with so-and-so. So, when I was in my early thirties, if I spent eight hours with Phil Jackson, I would have been like hundred percent. Holy shit. I'm with Phil Jackson. It's amazing. And I got to say, like, you definitely lose some of the holy countess of it. Right. And, yeah. and what it, what it becomes instead though, is really kind of cool. And it almost feels like you're hanging out with a peer and you, it's actually a good place to be because you lose the nervousness and you lose like the sweaty palms that I used to have all the time. And instead you're just spending time with a really interesting human being. And he basically, I thought I was going to get an hour with him. You know, I flew to Montana. The first thing he said to me, because Jeannie Buss, the owner of the Lakers, helped me yeah. arrange it. And the first thing he said to me was, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for Jeannie. And I was like, well, this isn't going to last long. And we sat at a coffee shop. And he said, I thought I'd take you for a, a drive around Flathead Lake. And um, I was like, okay. And it, it's like a big ass lake. So we're driving around and we're just casually talking about Montana and basketball and this and that. And um, I love a lot about his childhood. And he was like, why don't we stop for lunch? And we stopped for lunch, had lunch, kept driving. It's like, do you want to come back to my house? Yeah, sure. We sit, we go back to his house. We're sitting on a porch. At one point, at one point there was this cat, like the neighborhood cat just was climbing over us on the chair. We're sitting on these rocking chairs in his backyard rocking. And at one point his rocking chair went over the cat's tail. And I remember the cat went meow. And um, which is funny because I was once with a baseball player who ran over a cat in his Humvee. So that's two bad cat incidents for me. Oh, man. Yeah, not on purpose. And then um, he's like, you want to go to dinner later? I'm going to take a nap. You want to go get dinner? Like, sure, we'll go for dinner. And I swear to God, it was more like, it was like if some, I've said this before, some like hedge fund douchebag won bid $100,000 on the spend a day with Phil Jackson. Kind of like I kind of won that prize. And what it was for me, it was just, it wasn't the best reporting day. Like he's not, like you just said, he does not live to talk about basketball. Like he doesn't. He really enjoys talking about history, Montana, religion, politics to a certain degree. Um, so I would say 80% of the day was that, but 20% were some really gold nuggets about coaching the Lakers. And it was just, I really came to like him. We've emailed since, I, we've exchanged books. You know, he's just, um, he's a really nice, normal guy who just happened to be a really legendary basketball coach. Yeah. I think one of the things you talked about, and this might've been when you were on um, Howard Beck's pod for the full 48 is you kind of talked about like, it seems like people are remembering him like this young, the group younger than me is like, well, you know, he's the guy that, you know, messed up with the Knicks. And like, for people like my age to like older groups, it's like, you guys obviously do not understand how good this guy was and stuff. But like, so I definitely like really enjoy those things. Cause I'm, I, I like eat up like basketball history stuff. Like, 
Um, I just got NBA Jam, the book from Rayon Ali, because I just finished yours. I was like, I got to read some basketball stuff now. Before I read your book, I read The Return of the King from Brian Windhorst and Dave McMenamin. I couldn't put it down. That's like great. That, yeah, that's stuff, that's stuff that just like sticks with me. Um, you read the I, Bill Simmons book of basketball, of course. Yeah, 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 of course. So Bill's kind of like my idol. Like he's the reason I want to be a podcaster. Great. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that, that this was like kind of like what, you know, it's just all along the line. I, I listen to the podcast, the Book of Basketball podcast, every time he puts a new episode up. You're a guy who needs to go and go on eBay and buy every back issue of Slam Magazine. Yes. Yes, I am. I have the LeBron specialty one they did as last year in Cleveland. And I love it because it talks about like his time, um, you know, when he was like thinking about college and even though he wasn't really thinking about college and like UC was on the list and people were like, LeBron might go to UC. I'm like, he is not going to UC people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like- he, um, so I was um, off topic. My roommate, when I moved to New York and started Sports Illustrated in 96, my roommate was the editor of Slam, this guy, Russ Bankston, who's a you know great basketball writer. And um, so Slam was my thing. And back in the day, 90s, early 2000s, Slam was a Bible. Yeah. Slam was awesome. And Slam really spoke to the merging of hip hop culture and basketball. And I still, I freaking, I love Slam Magazine. So. Yeah, it's, it's so good. I pick up like, I'll pick up, I'm a big sneakerhead. So like anytime they do like the special shoe edition or like on the Jordans and stuff like that, I'll make sure I read those. Yep. Um, a couple more things I want to get to uh, before okay. we end this. So I, I think I've taken more time than I asked you for. So I really appreciate it. Obviously um, you were talked about your Showtime book and it looks like HBO is going to be doing a doc series related to your book. It's not like, a doc series. It's a scripted doc scripted series. Scripted That's what I meant. Sorry. So how cool is that for you? Like, you know, that you're going to have that be done. Like your book is telling the story of the Showtime Lakers. It's ridiculous. And I'm, I'm, I'm paranoid because of COVID. Like it was, should have been filming a long time ago and it's not, it's, um, it's ridiculous. I mean, you, I just wanted to be a sports writer. That's what I said to my parents. I was like, I just want to be a sports. I just wanted to write for sports illustrated. It's all I wanted. And I never thought about writing books. Right. Then I wrote a book and the thing made the bestseller list. I, I, I didn't expect it to, I didn't. And then you get a second book deal and then you get a, and then you're writing books for a living, right? And then one day someone's like, yeah, we want to make, they want to make a, a series out of your book. And you're like, yeah, okay, I'm sure that'll happen because it's probably not going to happen. And then you find yourself in a freaking, so they gave my wife and my kids and I cameos in the pilot. So mm-hmm. we literally were, you pull up, it sounds dumb. We pull up to the set and there's our parking lot with my name on it. And there's a trailer with our name on it. And here's craft services. I go eat and then, all right, you're going to play a reporter. My wife played the secretary to the Bulls GM and my kids were extras. I'm like, it was magical. Like it was magical. It was one of the, the day my wife and I filmed our scene and we're in it for like, if you blink, you'll miss it. Was one of the best days of my life. It was so joyful and so amazing. And I never, it just was never in my head that any of this stuff would happen, you know, ever. So it's insane. It's truly, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous and it's so fun and it's really cool. Yeah, I'm stoked for it, man. Cause like I said, like I, I, I live for basketball history stuff. So I'm excited about this for sure. And, you know, like I said, being around your work for as long as I have since I was six, not since I was born. Right. Okay. Much better. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and then, you know, it's pretty well known. You've been putting out, you're working on a book now about Bo Jackson and like you talk about like, you've heard of him. Yeah. It's like the Paul Bunyan of, of sports, isn't it? Like, correct. Very much and, so. 
Yeah. So like, obviously, you know, I was in the generation where my dad was like, Hey, play tech mobile. So I was like, who's this? And he's like, watch this play I play. And so like, you're like, Oh yeah. And then the 30 for 30 comes out. Unfortunately, as a diehard Bengals fan, um, we ended yeah. Bo's football career and people yeah. don't like us for that. And we haven't been good since. So it's like, we, you know, we got the karma. Of Bo. The yes. Yeah, yeah, talk about a book you want to do, man. There's the book right there. Um, what's some of the stuff that you're really looking to to get in that book as well? Because I know, like, I've looked up some of his like baseball reference pages, and even then, you're like, "Holy shit, that's unreal!" So, like, what's some of the stuff you're like we should look to capture that you're capturing in this book? Well, I mean, the, th- the thing is, if you really want to understand Bo Jackson, you just go on YouTube and watch his clips. Yeah. The numbers actually don't tell the story because he wasn't yet a fully developed baseball player, and he only was playing, you know eight or nine NFL games a season because he'd be coming over from baseball. It's him climbing up a wall, literally running up a wall like Spider-Man. It's him throwing out Harold Reynolds from the corner with this ridiculous throw from right field to home. I mean, he's, I consider him the greatest athlete who's ever lived. And I actually think when you said Paul Bunyan, I think Paul Bunyan is, I actually wrote, I literally, it's funny you said that. I literally wrote to someone yesterday. He's Paul Bunyan. I swear to God, yesterday. Um, he is Paul Bunyan. He is like for people your age, you know of Bo Jackson. Right. You've heard of Bo Jackson. You've probably seen clips of Bo Jackson. But I feel like we're so sports is so prone to hyperbole mm-hmm. where 350 home run is a 500. You know, oh, it was it went 500 feet and it really went 350 feet. Or, oh, he dunked and he touched the top of the backboard, but he really just touched the top of the, of the box. You know, like all this stuff. Bo Jackson has actually hyperbole come to life. The shit he did was so preposterously ridiculous and never been an athlete like him. It's just, so to me, it's like chasing Paul Bunyan, which is really, really fun. I've enjoyed this book, the reporting immensely. Yeah. Cause I think about, you talk about all that stuff and the closest I have, and I guess it's fairly close is in nineties, you know, I was a kid when Deion Sanders played for the Cincinnati Reds. Yeah. So like I got to watch Deion play baseball. And like, I, for me, you know, I saw Billy Hamilton, but he obviously never got on base enough for me to say he was faster on the base path than Deion Sanders. But like, that's the closest I got to Bo. And, you know, like... Not even... So Deion was... Deion's awesome. Yeah. A all-time, all-time, all-time great football player. And he was a good baseball player. Right, exactly. It's a different... Bo is a great base. Bo was an all-star and a pro bowler. Bo was compared to Mickey Mantle, and he was compared to Eric Dickerson. And those weren't hyperbole. Those were legit comparisons. Like, he was just... There's never been an athlete. Jim Thorpe, maybe. There's never been an athlete like Bo Jackson, though. I don't Yeah, yeah it's so cool. So I'm, I'm really excited about this. That's- I was curious, and obviously not asking you to name any names by any means because I wouldn't want to do that, but after Kobe's passing. I like a tough question. Go ahead. Did you have anyone that wanted to have their stuff taken out of the book? Nope. I had one guy say to me, he was really nervous about it. And uh, I don't know, you know, and I understand it. In fact, I would completely understand because it's different when someone's alive and when someone dies. Right. Your words sound different. The weight of your words sounds different. It's one thing to criticize someone when he's alive and he's here to talk about it. But to number one, um, have the person not be alive. And number two, have him pass in the span between when you said the words and then when people are going to see them on print, that adds a lot of weight to it. But I didn't have anyone say no. And I actually, I was really nervous about the backlash from this book. Like I was really nervous about it. In fact, my cousin Daniel read the book before it came out and he, he, uh, he texted me and he's like, I think you're going to, it's going to be really awful for you. And I was like, I think you're right. And it ended up not being, ended up being great. And the criticisms were mild. And I think the big thing is, is that people knew that Kobe had this, like, it wasn't like I was revealing some 
oh my God, what? He could be an asshole. Like people were aware of that. It wasn't, and it didn't define who he was at 41, you know, like who he was as a kid. I was an asshole at that age too. You know, like we just were born to be assholes and grow out of it. So it would end up okay. So is your next Lakers book, is it going to be about the baby Lakers, the post Kobe Achilles injury, D'Angelo Russell, Dick Young, fun stuff. Are you done? Like, I think, no, I think I'm done with the Lakers. I mean, I don't know. I've been told, Oh, you got to do the third, the LeBron. I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me in the same way, but you never know. Can I say in time I did my research, I absolutely loved your LeBron Lakers comparison to Will Chamberlain. I thought that that was on the T excellent, but if they win three in a row with LeBron, right. that, changes it, that changes you. And also, I do love LeBron. I really yeah. do. I love LeBron. I love, like today, he, him speaking out about the All-Star game. Like, why the hell are Same. we doing this? Love. Love that he endorsed Hillary Clinton, whatever your apologies are. Love that he, like, I'm, on your side. I'm a fan Perfect. of guys who do that stuff. Even if they're conservative, I swear, I'm very liberal, but even if they're conservative and they want to take a stand, I don't have a problem. Like, everyone's hard on Kurt Schilling right now. I don't like Kurt Schilling because he's an asshole. I don't have a problem with the guy speaking out using his platform. I kind of applaud that. And I love the LeBron in a position where he, a lot of guys in his shoes are very corporate and very safe. He's not, I really love that. Did you read uh, LeBron Inc or return of the King? No, they're really good. They're really good. I don't care enough. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, And also I will say this, when you work on sports books, you're always reading sports books about the sport you're writing about. So generally speaking, I am not, for my uh, enjoy and pleasure time reading sports books. Which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think I have asked you all the things I wanted to, man. Um, I really appreciate you giving me some time. I know when I first reached out to you, you were like, give me about a month and a half. And I totally understood that because you were doing so much. Um, Before I get you out of here, if you want to take a minute for people, you can shout out your social media, your podcast, anywhere people can follow along with you. By all means, man. I mean... I'm on Twitter, Jeff Perlman. I tweet too much. I uh, I have a podcast every week called Two Writers Sling and Yang, which is me speak, always talking with a different journalist every week about writing and the process. And I have a website, jeffperlman.com. But, you know, in my books, they're easy to, I think they're pretty easy to find. So Yeah, they are. I know I have to read Boys Will Be Boys now. I have to read about the Cowboys. Oh man, you're a Cowboy fan. Come on. Yeah. I was a Cowboy fan oh, all right. as a kid. I'm a Bengals fan, which is not better. It's not better at all, Jeff, but this book, uh, cowboy book starts out with Mike Irvin stabbing a teammate in the neck with a pair of barber scissors. So I'm in, you sold yeah. me. Yeah, awesome. you go. Well, this is guys, this has been Jeff Perlman. Thank you again, man. Uh, everyone. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend. Have a great night and we will talk to you all soon.